And I am so glad that you are here today for week three uh, of a series that we started January 6th. The series is called Soul Detox, and it's all about getting our life ready for 2013 from a spiritual standpoint. Say the word prepared. What's the other word I want you to say? Ah, some of you remember what we're saying. Say the word useful. Say the word prepared. Say the word useful. Our goal this January at Journey Church International is to help all of us prepare to get our lives useful for God in this new year. We started January 6th with what we called inner detox. We said if our soul is, is going to get the, the bad out and the good in, let's talk about what needs to happen with our soul. And we saw how important the inner man was. Jesus said it's the inside of a person where things really begin to live and grow spiritually. So January 6th, we offered a Bible reading challenge. And man, I have loved to follow our people on Twitter, on Facebook. Uh, I actually had one of our men today came up to me and he said, Christian, I don't know if this sounds sacrilegious, but man, I'm crushing the Bible this year because he is reading his Bible. I had another one of our people come up and say, Christian, the first week of the year, I read my Bible every week, uh, last, or every day during the week. Last week, I didn't read my Bible any days during the week. And I said, hey, you're 50%. So we're, you know, we're, we're halfway there. And our people are taking very seriously the goal this year to read the Bible more this year than they ever have before. Why? So that we can grow spiritually. Last week, we talked about outer detox. Uh, and, and it was just, man, it was a neat environment in here last year as I shared some things that I've struggled with in my life. I've heard all week long from people saying, man, this is something Christian that I have to get out of my life some things that people have been struggling with uh, and it's cool to watch what's happening in our church as our people are trying to pursue God with the inside of their life as they're trying to honor God with the outside of our life and this week we come to week three and we're going to talk about not inner detox or outer detox but we're going to talk about relational detox that's the goal this week to talk about relational detox and I'm not just going to be talking about people but we're going to be talking about things we're connected to relationally that, that at least we need to have a discussion about as we view our, our life spiritually in 2013. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. And I, and I want to give you a, a verse that I'm going to have to explain to you, and I'm going to have to explain why I'm explaining it to some of you. Our ushers are going down the aisle now. They're handing out Bibles. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible today, if you don't have a Bible, if you want a Bible to follow along, we'll read several things in the Bible today. Just raise your hand. They'll give you one. Uh, I've been saying for a couple weeks we've given away more than 300 Bibles since our church started about 15 months ago. That's true. Uh, but we had to put another order in this week, which means we've given away almost 400 Bibles since our church started. And we, and we love to give God's Word to people. So if you don't have one, uh, Raise your hand, tell an usher, put your name in this one. This one's yours. You can keep it. Uh, a lot of people, you say, well, not everyone has a Bible. Some people are following along on their phones. Uh, some people are following along today on a tablet. Wherever you can get God's word where you can read it, open it up uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're going to read an interesting verse today, and then I'm going I'm to back my way through it so that we can understand what God is really trying to say to us as we focus on a message I'm, I'm referring to as relational detox, how to get our life best prepared to spiritually make an impact in 2013. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, says this. I'm in 1 Corinthians. Let me turn a few more pages to the back, because I thought, that doesn't say what I thought it was going to say. Here we go. 2 Corinthians 
chapter 6, verse 14 says, Do not be yoked together. If you have a Bible on your lap or have a way to highlight that electronic thing you have, those two words, yoked together, I need you to underline them or circle them or highlight them. If you don't have a Bible but you have some sermon notes, we should have given you something that looks like this when you came in today in a pen. Just write those two words, yoked together, because that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about being yoked together, and no, it doesn't have anything to do with eggs. We're talking about something else. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what righteousness, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Let me read it again. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Now, I want to share something with you about that verse. Because every time I open my Bible and I read and I prepare, you have to understand the premise of our church. And I've given our mission statement uh, every Sunday this new year. Um, our mission statement is, and I know I'm driving our PowerPoint people crazy because I'm kind of skipping around. Uh, but our, the, the reason we have a church is because we want to see people who are far from God become passionate Christians who make a difference in the world. I pray that every week somebody is in church who has never been to church before in their life or that somebody came to church today who's been out of church for a long time, or that someone came to church today who hates church, but you just feel like you need something more. I mean, I pray every week God sends us people who are not used to this kind of thing, but, but who are searching. So when I prepare, I read the Bible as if someone who's never heard it before, and I almost read it through the eyes of a skeptic to make sure that I don't just throw out a verse that could allow someone to turn off spiritually. So when I read 1 Corinthians 6, 14 through the eyes of someone who may be skeptical spiritually or someone who may be new spiritually, here's what I read. Don't be yoked together with unbelievers. For what, righteous, what do righteousness and wickedness have in common or what fellowship can light have with darkness? And I say, wait a minute. Here's a Bible verse telling you that you're not allowed to hang out with people who are not Christians. Here's a Bible verse telling you that uh, you shouldn't be close to people who just aren't just like you spiritually. Here's a Bible verse that says you should only be friends with Christian people. Christian, is that, is that what this is saying? And the answer is no. That's not what this is saying. You say, how do you know that? Because sometimes you have to read more than a verse to understand what a verse is saying. As a matter of fact, this verse is, is really kind of saying the exact opposite, or the message of this book is the exact opposite. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 12, I need you to see this. For those of you who may have just heard that verse and thought, wait a minute, I don't want to be a part of a church that tells people that you can't hang out with people that, are, that aren't just like you spiritually. I don't want to be a part of a religion that says that I can't have any friends who don't follow the way that I think. That sounds kind of intolerant, Christian. I don't know that I want that. That's not what the Apostle Paul's trying to say at all in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. As a matter of fact, he said the exact opposite in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the verse before, verses 9 through 12. Paul said this. Um, hang on. Forgive me. Go to 1 Corinthians 5. Say, Christian, are you out of your mind? It appears that way. I didn't mean to be, but it appears that way. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul's writing to the same church, and he's talking to them about how they're going to grow spiritually while still impacting people in the world. And the question is, is Paul telling us that we can't have any friends that aren't Christians? The answer is no. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. 
Not at all meaning people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. Paul says, listen, if you were only allowed to be friends with Christians, you really couldn't live in this world because not everyone is like us. Verse 10, but I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or a sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slander, a drunkard, or a swindler. Don't even eat with such a person. Here's one of my favorite verses, verse 12, and I think more Christians need to memorize this and keep this. He said, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Just judge those inside. So we read 2 Corinthians 6, 14, and it appears that Paul's saying, listen, if you want to grow spiritually, you need to be friends with Christian people and don't associate with people who aren't Christians. But that's not what Paul's saying at all. Paul's saying, listen, we live in the world. We have associations with people who aren't Christians. But Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, that it's extremely important to have close associations. The word he used is yoked with Christian people if we're going to grow in our faith. You say, why is that? Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 again and look at why Paul says Christians need Christians. And then I'm going to do something that I don't really do. I'm, I'm going to give you the invitation to my message at the very beginning of my message, and then I'm going to teach you through my message. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3 through 13 presents the harsh reality of trying to live life as a Christian. And here's the harsh reality of living life as a Christian. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry won't be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. But Paul says, here's what it's like for me to live the Christian life. I've had to have great endurance. I've had troubles. I've had hardships. I've had distresses. I've been beat, imprisoned, in riots. It's been hard work. I've had sleepless nights. I've been hungry. I've been in purity and understanding and patience and kindness and the Holy Spirit and sincere love and truthful speech in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying yet we live on, beaten yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and we've opened our hearts to you. We're not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, as I speak to my children, open your hearts to us also. And then he says this, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Here's what the Apostle Paul is trying to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 that I want to have your attention today. Paul says this, at least for Paul, and, and I would agree with Paul, and I would imagine most of you would agree with Paul. Paul says, I have experienced that the Christian life is difficult, and it's hard. And sometimes it causes me not to sleep well at night. And the things that I have committed to, uh, sometimes I have to persevere through them. And sometimes I have difficulty in understanding. And Paul said, the Christian life for me has not been a cakewalk. So I'm asking you, to help me in my spiritual walk, and you're saying no. And Paul said, here's what I need you to understand. For me to make it spiritually, and for you to make it spiritually, like we need each other. 2 Corinthians 6.14 is less of a command than a plea. It's not a, hey, don't ever hang out with people who aren't Christians, but it's a plea of, if you want to make it spiritually, and I want to make it spiritually, at some point, we're going to have to get together and help each other make it spiritually because the Christian life is a difficult thing to live. I say this almost every time I marry someone, and I mean it. The, the most difficult thing 
that I have ever entered into is marriage. Marriage is the hardest thing that I have ever tried to do. Uh, it, it is so worth it, but it's hard. And for those of you who have been married more than 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, you know it's not easy. Uh, the best marriages aren't made by perfect couples, but persevering couples, couples that are just willing to work through stuff. Probably the second most difficult thing that I've ever tried to do is to live a good Christian life and try to pursue God and do what God wants me to do. Christianity is hard. And here you have Paul telling the Corinthians, Christianity is hard, and because of that, we need you to kind of take time in your lives to be around us and to help us. And Paul said, you're, you're not willing to do that. And if you're not willing to align yourself spiritually with other Christians, we're going to focus on this word yoked. He said, you're going to find out the Christian life is going to be difficult for you to live. Some of you today aren't living in what I would call the full blessing of Christianity. You're not living with the full rewards of what God wants you to live with spiritually because, because you're not getting all of Jesus that is available to you. And the reason is because you don't have any Christian friendships or any Christian relationships in your life. And if I were to ask you, and I'm not, but if I were to ask you, um, raise your hand if you don't have five really good, close Christian friends, my guess is most people in here would say, I don't have a lot of really close Christian friends. That's going to make it more difficult on your life spiritually. Uh, you know, in, in, uh, in late December, it snowed. I don't know if you remember that. The week right before school got out, my kids actually had a snow day, the Lee Summit School District, right before the half day that would lead to Christmas break. But something interesting happened. You know, after it snowed, it was cold for a little while, and then the sun came out. But it's interesting. In my neighborhood where I live, and maybe your neighborhood was similar, uh, for about three weeks, even up till last Sunday, uh, there was one side of the street that still had snow. Every yard on one side of the street had snow. And then one side of the street looked like it was April. There, there wasn't, I mean, a flake of snow, a snowball, nothing. So as I drive out my neighborhood, the right side of the road coming down my street, it looks like winter. And the left side of the road looks like spring. And you say, well, what had happened? Well, clearly, the right side of the road was not receiving as much sunlight as the left side of the road I guess because the house is blocked or the trees blocked or this, the, the way our subdivision is laid out. I don't know. But I see Christians in our church the exact same way. I see some Christians who appear to be living with all the blessings of God and, and they, they just feel, they, they appear that they are soaked spiritually with the sun, not the S-U-N, but the S-O-N. That Jesus, I mean, is just all over their life. And then I see others that they just, they look like they're living in the shadows of Christianity. They look tired and they look worn out and they look kind of cold and gray. And you just look and you think, man, I wish we could figure out a way to move them to the other side of the spiritual street where they could kind of just bask in all that Jesus has for them. Today's message is going to be one of those things that will allow you to move to the other side of the street and live with more of Jesus in your life this year than you had last year. But it's a difficult message to grasp and to apply because we, and I say we because I am too, we are busy people. And busy people don't have time for a lot in life, and to ask more um, just makes things much more difficult. So 2 Corinthians 6.14 is our key verse today. And what does it say? Don't be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Today we're going to talk about being yoked together, about being connected. And here's my invitation today, and then I'll preach my message. My invitation to you today is this. 
I, my desire is that everyone in here, for spiritual reasons that I'll teach you in a minute, my desire is that everyone in here would, this year, next month, sign up, go to a small group, and try a Bible study small group in our church at least three times between now and spring break. That's my invitation. That's, that's the goal of this message, to convince you of the spiritual reasons why you need to step out of your comfort zone, step out of your life, step out of your busyness, and try a small group so that you can build some key Christian relationships in your life so that you can have everything that God intends for you to have. That's the goal of this message. Now, some of you have already answered the invitation, and it's a no, because you don't have time, and because you're too busy, and because your life doesn't allow it, and because you don't like people, or you don't like church people, or you don't like Christian people, or you don't like going to houses that have cats or dogs, or you're scared of the leaders, or you went to a Bible study one time, and someone made you feel bad. I mean, I've heard all these, and I understand all these, but, but I want to give you a lesson today that I learned as I was, as I was reading this book, Sticky Church, and if you're a leader, man, Larry Osborne is a pastor on the West Coast. He has some great books, but he used an illustration with Legos that I have never seen before in talking about the busyness of, uh, of church people, um, in talking about why people don't have times to do certain things in their life. I, should, I was watching the kids in the nursery, and they were playing with these today, so now I get to play with them um, as well. Uh, and, and he used an illustration. He said, you know, your life, your life only has so many days, so many hours, so many connections, so many activities that you can do. So you kind of start out like this. This is your life. And at the, age of, at the age of 18, if you're really blessed, I mean really blessed, um, this is your life and, and you have a mom and a dad. Um, and relationally, your connections and your time and your schedule are pretty full. Um, you're pretty filled up. At some point, you get married. Now, this is not a marriage message. Uh, but I, I want to show you an important part of marriage that we'll talk about a little more in February. When you get marry, married, um, your mom and dad are supposed to drop out of your relational pyramid as number one. And a married couple is supposed to look like this. Two people become one. A lot of marriages, unfortunately, they look like this. And mom and dad are always between a husband and a spouse. You ever seen a marriage like this? Have a marriage like this? And you kind of peer through the hole of mom and dad and you think, I hate Christmas and Thanksgiving. This is a very unhealthy marriage right here. If you have to go through mom and dad to love your spouse and back and forth, that's pretty bad. It's pretty dysfunctional. That's what a lot of marriages look like, though. But, but then you, you get married, um, and marriage is good, except you know, now you have two families. So you, you, you have added on, and life is, uh, life is busy. Um, and then you get a job, um, or you get two jobs. You get out of school. You both get jobs. Things are awesome. Um, you both get hobbies because you're young and you're married and you don't have kids and you finally have a real paycheck and things are going good. Um, so you get a hobby and that's good. And, and, then, you have, and then you have kids. Um, and, you know, life begins to change drastically um, when you have kids. Uh, and you put kids over here. You'd like to stick them all the way with grandma and grandpa and get rid of them more, but you can't. So your kids are, you know, they're kind of an integral part of your life. So, you know, now, now you've got your kids, and, you know, your life, your life is getting pretty full. Um, and, you know, because you have kids, you need to have a date every now and then, so you add to your jobs and to your hobbies. You had a date night maybe every now and then. And then your kids grow up, um, and, you know, your kids start school, um, and maybe your kids start sports. You know, if you have kids and, and they're in school, you know, kind of that looks like this. If you have kids that 
are in competitive sports, it may, you know, may look like, do I have a four one in here? Um, you know, it may, it may look like um, this. You know, your kids are starting to, you know, if you have, you know, dance, you have kids in dance or gymnastics, you can just like put as many, like the girls' sports are way busier than the boys. But you, you, you get the point, right? I mean, life, life, starts, life starts filling up. Life starts filling up quick, and all of a sudden, you're out of balance. Um, and you decide to start going to church. So you go to church, and you enjoy the church. So you, because you enjoy the church, you come early, you stay late, you start volunteering. Um, adds another thing in your life, except some of you, um, you volunteer in one area, and your spouse volunteers in another area. So you just you find yourself going even a different direction. And then a pastor gets up and says, hey, I need to add another thing to your life. Now you need to be in a small group. And you're saying, Christian, I, I don't have time for that. Now this pyramid is, is Danielle and I. This was us three or four years ago. Um, married, parents, um, date night, hobbies, kids, competitive sports, dance, church, serving at church, serving in different directions. Danielle and I for five years drove two cars to church every Sunday, even though we were working in ministry roles. We were in two separate rooms in a building. We never even saw each other. Um, and, and we had no, no Christian friends, and we had no time for Christian friends. And if, you would have, if I would have been sitting in this service and you would say, listen, my goal today is to get you to join a small group, I would have grabbed my phone, I would have started reading ESPN.com, and I'd have been out for the day because I just knew, I knew there's no way. I, I don't have any margin in my life for that. And here's what you need to understand in life today, whether it be spiritually, maritally, um, as parents, as workers, as people with a hobby, Danielle and I had to slowly deconstruct our life and tear it down. Um, we had to give up some competitive sports. We had to give up some dance and ballet. We had to give up some of our own hobbies. And we, we kind of had to get back to the, uh, the family unit of us and our kids. Uh, we're even going through a cycle right now where we're, we're having to realign life with parents because, you know, as we grow and our kids get older, our holidays shrink, and we're having to figure out with our mom and dad how much time we can spend with each. I mean, life is difficult, and we've kind of had to go back to saying what's most important. What's most important? How do we do what's most important to get the most out of life for us, and how do we fit everything in? Sometimes, because you only have so many relational connections, you can't just keep building up because your tower's going to fall down. You have to, at some point, deconstruct to build back up. Here's what I want to tell you spiritually. As you build back up spiritually, there are some things in your life, like reading your Bible, that have to be priority. And I believe there are some things in your life, like, like having the opportunity to have some Christian friends that you can live life with, that have to be priority. Why? Because of what the Bible says about it. So today, the message is relational detox. And I want to talk to you today about the yoke. What happens in the life of a Christian when they have a great Christian friend or a great group of Christian friends to live life with? What happens? We find three things that are going to happen in the life of a Christian that is yoked together. By the way, the term yoke, it's a farming term. Uh, I grew up in a small farming town in southern Ohio. M maybe you don't know the term, but the yoke is, if you've ever eaten at a Longhorn Steakhouse, 
The yoke is that big piece of wood that would connect two cow or oxen or horses together as you're plowing to make sure that they do a really efficient job. So when we talk about being yoked together, we're talking about the people that you're deeply connected to and how can you be deeply connected to people who will help you succeed and, and be the most prepared and be, have the most useful year spiritually ever. So three things, three reasons that I'm going to try to give you to try to arrange your life to be yoked with other Christians, um, starting with participation in a small group. Maybe it's a men's group, maybe it's a women's group, maybe it's a couple's group. I don't know what it is, but I'm asking you at the end of this message to pray deeply about at least three times trying out a small group to see if it adds the value to your Christian life that the Bible says it will. What's it going to do? Three things. Number one, being yoked with other Christians provides direction for us. You're probably going to just write direction on your, on your notes that we handed out, but you might write provides direction. Because we find out according to Scripture that when, when we are yoked together with other Christians, that it helps us just like two cows plowing a field together um, can stay straighter if they're locked in. Christians who are locked in with one another have a better time walking the straight and narrow of the Christian life. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, Jesus uses this term yoke. And, and I love the thought here because he's, he's talking about learning and living the Christian life. And Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30 says a lot, but I'm going to try to teach you a few things from it today. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Now stop right there. That's the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, right? Christian life is hard. I don't have any friends. I need some help. Like I'm trying to open up to you. You won't open up to me. Like we got to help each other. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, a yoke was used to tie two animals together to perform a certain task. So in ancient Israel 2,000 years ago, anytime a rabbi would come to town and he would teach someone how to walk alongside God, they would say, the terminology was, have you heard the new rabbi? Have you heard the new yoke of the rabbi? A yoke was a teaching that would tie you to God so that you could walk alongside him. That's what the word yoke meant. When Jesus was using it, when Jesus said, take my yoke upon me, he was saying, take my teaching to heart because I can help you learn how to tie yourself to God and walk alongside him. I can give you direction in life spiritually. Man, as we study scripture, we find that Christians who live in relationship and in community with other Christians have a much easier time staying on course spiritually than those who don't. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews 10, 25, Paul told the church, many people think that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, uh, Paul told the church uh, that was meeting, he said, don't forsake gathering together as some are already doing. Because by it, you're gonna be equipped, you're gonna be grown. Paul said, listen, don't quit hanging out with other Christians. A lot of people are doing that, I know, but don't do it because you're going to grow if you keep doing that. Man, I saw a really interesting thing in January of 2011 on SportsCenter. Uh, and I watch ESPN a lot. That's kind of my daily show to unwind and to start the day and maybe in the middle of the day if I don't have anything to do. I mean, that's kind of my, my go-to thing. And there was a marathon in Japan. Perhaps some of you saw this. Uh, there was a marathon in Japan, a Japanese marathon, and the, the runners who were out leading the pack had already completed 26 miles of the 26.2 miles. 
Uh, the man in, in the front of the race who was leading with less than 200 yards to go uh, was named Natsuki Tarada. And here's what happened. They had a television truck as a part of the film crew that was literally, it was, it was riding in front of the runner. So if you can imagine it, the truck is going towards the finish line. The runners are looking at the bed of the truck, and they've got a camera crew in the bed of the truck because they want close-up shots on the runners as they come down the last mile of the race. And there's a pack of four runners that are all jockeying for position. And at about 200 yards left to go in the marathon, Natsuki kind of jumps out in front. And he has such a burst of speed that it puts him like within a few feet of the truck. Now what the runner didn't know, and what the truck wasn't thinking about, was that 150 yards from the finish line, they had a little alleyway where the truck could peel off out of the race. And the camera would switch from the back of the truck to the finish line so they could grab him coming the last 100 yards. Well, Natsuki got so focused on the truck instead of the race that leading after 26, more than 26 miles, when that truck turned off the side road, he followed it and went right, right down. And you can watch him run right off the course and all the runners pass him and he realizes, oh no. And he had to get back on course. Now there are some Christians in life that get so focused running their race and they don't have any pack of Christians around them that it's so easy to get turned off for a week and then a month and then six months and then a year and you look around and, and you're not even on the same race course spiritually anymore. Whereas if you'd have been running with a pack of people just by watching others run the race, you may stay on the course. So you say, what's the importance, Christian, of being yoked together, connected for the purpose of, of, of walking with God. What's the purpose? It, it gives you direction. It helps you understand the parameters of the spiritual life that you should live. Secondly, being yoked together with another believer. It eases the burden of life. I think the, the word you'll write down is burden, but you ought to add the extras in there. Being yoked together eases burdens spiritually. Let's go to Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 again. By the way, I'm going to read this at every point, and I'm going to ask those of you who will take the challenge to memorize these three verses this week, Matthew 11, 28, 29, and 30. They're some of the best verses in the Bible. Write a little three-by-five note card, keep it with you, look at it every day, because there's some good stuff in these verses. What does Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 says? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. What's a yoke? It's a teaching. It's a teaching that's going to tie us to God and allow us to walk with him. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You will find rest for your souls. Say rest for your souls. Does your soul ever get tired? Because mine does. Man, sometimes my soul like, feels like it, it just needs a sabbatical. My soul gets tired. You know, I, I, uh, a few years back, I met Dave Ramsey, not personally, but I was introduced to who he was, and the way he leads people to manage their finances really grabbed hold of Danielle and I, and, I mean, it transformed our life, uh, and at the time, I was driving a vehicle that cost way too much. I immediately turned it in, bought a vehicle that I could pay for in cash so I could own my vehicle, and we started living, you know, those of you who know Dave Ramsey, we started living off envelopes and in envelopes and, you know, trying to pay for everything in cash and trying to get rid of all of our debt and do stuff. 
And when I did that, I bought at the time a 2001 Suburban that I'm still driving today. My car is older than my oldest son, and it's got 230,000 miles on it. And I told him, I'm praying it gets to 350. Like, I, you know, ever, I, I honestly, I pray for my car because it, it needs it. Um, but it's, it's got a leaky oil pan. Some of you have this. And I have a, a you know, cardboard box in my garage, and I've got oil stains all over my driveway. And when I go to people's houses, I park in the street because I'd get oil all over there. And, and I have learned, you know, I went to get it priced to fix. So how much is it to fix this? And they were like, oh, you know, it's, it, you, know you go to Firestone. I'm like, ah, that's not, it'd be like a million dollars. I mean, you know, they're just trying to, like, like, rob you for everything. So I was like, you know, however many it was, I was like, I don't have that. And so what's a cheaper option? And they said, just carry a, uh, carry a quart of oil with you and... and uh, once a week, fill it up, and it'll drain out once a week, fill it up. So I live life knowing daily that my car is running out of oil, knowing because I go check my envelope, and my envelope does not yet have enough money to go to have the guys fix it yet. I know every week my car is running out of oil, and I have to fix it. I also have a leaky tire that, you know, every month I have to fill up my tire with air. I know that I'm running out of oil, that my tire is running out of air, so every now and then I'll stop and fill them up. If you understood that your soul was leaking and that day by day you're running out of spiritual energy because the world we live in is hard and it's difficult. If you understood the principle of Ephesians 5.18 where Paul told the, the church at Ephesus that he had started, that he was at for three years. He pastored these people longer than he pastored anyone. And the Bible says that when you become a Christian, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. It changes your life. But then in Ephesians 5.18, Paul said, make sure all the time you're being filled with the Spirit. The question would have been, wait a minute, Paul, did, didn't that happen already? And Paul, Paul would say, yes, but you're leaking. You see, when you go to work and when you're around the world and, and you know, you, you're trying to manage things financially and you're trying to be a good parent and you're trying to be a good spouse, and, you know, you're leaking all the time spiritually. And if you don't ever stop to fill up, like you'll go flat. Maybe you'll have a blowout like a tire. Maybe you'll just burn up like an engine. Some of you haven't realized that you're leaking spiritual oil yet. You say, well, what do I need? You need to fill up every now and then. How do I do that? I go to a spiritual filling station. What is a spiritual filling station? Believe it or not, it's not just church on Sunday. It's a small group. You see, it's easy to come and sit in a chair and, and be preached at, but you're not being really filled up today like you would be if you sat in a room and for an hour you had conversation with someone and you were in a dialogue rather than just sitting and listening to a monologue. You see, Jesus said that we need to ease the burdens in life. And here's the truth. Today, you might not need a small group because you feel full. You don't feel like you're leaking. You don't need any help. You don't need any friends. But eventually, one day, your life is going to hit a rough patch. Like I had a friend last week that called me Sunday at like 9 p.m. Usually, by that time, I'm almost in a coma from the day of ministry. And he said, I'm not going to make it through the night if I, if, if I can't talk to you. He lives an hour from me. He said, I can get in the car and be there right now if you want me to. And I said, come on. And we started at 10, and we met to almost 1 a.m. He was ready to have a blowout. And thank God he had a Christian friend that he could call that, to just kind of pump him back up spiritually and send him off. But I told him, how long has it been since you've been in church, since you've been in a small group? How long has it been? Are you getting semi-regular checkups spiritually to make sure that you don't get to this level? And his answer was no, and I need to do that. And I'm begging you, if you don't want to burn out, if you don't want to blow out, if you don't want to burn up spiritually, get in a small group. 
might take you a while to find one that you like with people you like, with people you get along with. But I promise you, if you will deconstruct your life to leave room for one, I promise you, you'll grow spiritually. Why else should I exist? Why else should I be yoked together with people spiritually? Because I believe it multiplies effectiveness spiritually. I believe it helps you do more in your Christian life than you could have done by yourself. I believe it motivates you to do more than you might have done by yourself. And there's just something about a group of Christian people getting together with a common mission that, that really makes an impact in the world. So it multiplies effectiveness. Let's go back to Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Kind of our verse of the day. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I'm humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, come to me, follow my yoke. Why? So you can rest, so you can have ease, but so that you can grow. He said, you're going to learn, you're going to grow, you're going to progress spiritually. And we are all about, in our church, spiritual progression. We have eight things that our, that our church calls values. I think we hand them out at the next steps, 10, or at least we used to. And one of those is spiritual growth. Um, a value is this. If we have church and this doesn't happen, th- then our church is useless. If we have church and people aren't growing spiritually, then it doesn't matter. That, that's how much we value spiritual growth. And listen, incremental spiritual growth is good. One of my favorite quotes in the world from Pastor Rick Warren is, you know, you may not be where you want to be, but as long as you're not where you used to be, you're moving in the right direction. I love that quote. Incremental growth. Little baby steps are good. But exponential spiritual growth, I think, is better. You know, I'd rather be much closer to where I want to be than I used to be. So, Christian, tell me how to begin to quit taking baby steps spiritually and begin to, like, really radically grow spiritually you begin to get connected and live in community and relationships with other Christians. See, my life doesn't have time for that. I get it. You have to figure out how to make that happen. You say, how am I going to do that? I don't know. You have to sit down with Legos and build, build your family and say, okay, how can we change anything here to leave some room for this? You know, an interesting thing happened before I started this church, um, and that was this. And, and I, I don't... Um, you know, I don't say this flippantly, but I didn't want to start a church. Um, it's hard, and I would have rather have done something else. I don't always want to, to pastor a church. Um, the, the motivation of my life spiritually is not getting on a stage and preaching. Uh, I, I told a family, one of our core families, one of the core five families that we started the church with, uh, we had dinner with this week, and I said, I enjoyed doing church as much with five families as I do with nearly 500 people. It's all the same to me. I I like to minister to people. But as the church grow, the burdens grow, and the changes grow, and you have to make more decisions, and it's difficult. But but here is why I felt compelled in my spirit to start a church. You know, I spent two years trying to figure out, uh, because someone had asked me about three years ago, someone said, hey, do you think you could have been one of Jesus' disciples? And my answer, I thought, I don't know. I don't know if I could have. So I, I did like a, a two-year study on all of Jesus' disciples, who they were, what they did, how the first century church operated, and the answer was no. Uh, my life goals, vision, and values are not the same of that as one of the disciples. And as I studied closely, here's, I, I believe that a disciple was, and it's going to sound real similar to you, but I believe that a disciple was someone who lived their life to see people far from God, 
become passionate Christians and who made a difference in the world. And I decided, way before I decided I was going to start a church, I decided that I was going to live my life to have an impact on people who didn't know God. I was going to be the most passionate Christian that I could and that I was going to try to make a difference in the world in whatever time that I had left. That, that was my goal for my life. And when God told me to start a church and I said no forever, um, I felt like God saying, Christian, you can do this much spiritually. If you would start a church and find like-minded people, you all could do this much together. I want you to think for a minute. And, and I was thinking of this because we have our leadership team meeting tonight. And, you know, we're going to look at our annual report for last year. And we're going to look at our budget for next year and, and do those kind of things. But I, I, I was putting together information on just our church and the ministry that we've done. Um, and, I, and I brought this with me today so that I could get this correct. How many people on your own do you think you could have led to a relationship with Jesus Christ that didn't know God just all by yourself in the last 18 months? How much money do you think you could, just all by yourself, that you could have given away to people in need in the last 12 months? How many Christians that were away from God do you think you could have gone after, had a relationship with, and, and helped see God? Like, like, I started asking myself those questions, and the numbers were, you know, it's like, God, I don't think I can do much. I would try to do something, but I don't think I could do much. But together? And you know what people can do together? I looked at it. Since our church has started, 127 people have become Christians since our church has started because we've been operating collectively as a group. 83 people have rededicated their life spiritually. That means, by my math, 210 people have made spiritual decisions at our church since we started. We've baptized 52 people. We've given away as a church over $82,000 since we started. Let me go back to effectiveness. Me by myself, not even close, right, to what we can do together. Yet some of you are not all in on the together thing. Like you come to church here on Sunday morning, but none of these people are your friends, and you don't know their names, and if you had a problem, you wouldn't call them. And the problem is you, you don't have really any friends. You don't have anyone to call. And you've not yoked together. You've not joined your life together with another Christian person in a relationship with the purpose of moving forward spiritually. You know, I, I, uh, I love to read love to read leadership books. For those of you who are leaders or run your own business, this Dave Ramsey book, Entre Leadership, which is a lot more about leadership than finances, is one of the best books I've ever read for leading a team and casting vision and, and doing things well. But he has an illustration in there about the power of people doing things together. And he talks about the Belgian draft horse, which I guess is one of the strongest horses, one of the strongest animals that exist. Um, a Belgian draft horse can pull up to 8,000 pounds behind it. But here's the interesting thing. If you put two together, two horses who have never met, who have never been trained to do anything together, just, just the power of two, one horse can pull 8,000 pounds together. Two can pull 24,000 pounds. But if the two have been trained together and are acting as partners in life, they can pull 32,000 pounds together. See, what Jesus is telling us, what Paul is telling us, what Scripture is telling us is our potential as a Christian 
is here if we just exist by ourselves. But if we will get yoked together and engage relationally with others, it, will, it could go to here if we would begin living life with people going the same direction, helping us ease burdens, holding us accountable, helping us make sure we don't jog off into an alley when the finish line is straight ahead. Life can be radically, radically.